Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Here's the dueling questions, uh, second time around with Grant Sandground. Really enjoyed it. Hope you do too. And here it is. What's your take on professional grading these days? And what are the best elements and and what are some of the elements that need some improvements in today's grading market? I think there's improvements going on right now. I look back at 23 years ago, when we're so instrumental in helping get started, we were pretty idealistic. I'm sure we had the highest cost service and holder. We had an on-timer, it's free guarantee. We didn't really curry favor with dealers or bulk submitters. We just put it out there. And I think BGS has evolved. PSA keeps moving. Everybody can have a set registry, but PSA has the main set registry. Now, pressure is being put on PSA by others, including BGS, hopefully by having accurate grading, that's timely turnaround and good resale values. And if there were to be a combined registry, that would be interesting. And when you look at what Ryan Staczynski's doing with Gem Mint, if he's able to get the pop reports and pull those off and scrape or you know pull them all together, then just wondering about if there'd be a way to scrape the registries together. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Say, you know, I got a crazy question for you. It just came to my mind about grading. If you had an opportunity to do it over again, would you get rid of the 9.5 and just turn it into a 10 and make the pristine a black label 10? I don't think I would. I, I think that PSA had a head start. They now cannot afford to have a perfect 10. It'll mess them up. They also can't afford to have a 9.5. And so I think BGS has a niche in, in my marketing sense that the black label 10 is, is very meaningful. Uh, a regular 10 is to me, better than a PSA 10. And a 9.5, you just have to suffer with the fact that it doesn't sound as good. Hey, I've got a 9.5. Well, I've got a 10. And CSG and SGC have both realized that 10 is a magic number. What do you think about the importance of subgrades and being open about subgrades directly on the the labels themselves? Whereas BGS is one of the companies that does it, PSA has never done it. They don't tell you why you got a nine or why you got. That's part of our highest cost provider to provide that information. I think it was a real market edge in the beginning, and it was consternation that came back at you unfairly that people wanted to average the subgrades, which. If they really would think about it, it doesn't make any sense. You, you can't average the subgrades. Some are more important than others. And I think what you did was terrific. Now you can get with or without subgrades. I think subgrades are important. I think they demystify the grading. They mystify it in the algorithm, but they demystify it. And at least you can see, hey, there must be an edge flaw there because it's downgraded on edge. Let me turn it on the side and see. Your thoughts on the cost of grading today versus, let's say, five years ago? Okay. Gosh, I don't want to be telling people what to do, but this is so counter to what people are going to do. And that is that if there was a collector's union, they would get together and say, guys, we cannot be sending in cards at 50 bucks economy to PSA. Because if we do send in business as usual with all this pent up demand, why would they ever lower the price? If PSA starts getting, if they get a million cards a month, if they get a million at $50 a card and up, because that's their lowest price, why are they going to cut that 
to, to $40 or 30 or 25 or 20, except for the fact that there's competitive pressure. And so if SGC and BGS and CSG and all these are $25 a card and PSA is 50, I think it's an experiment to see if PSA still maintains this market share, why would they lower their price? The, the reason they would lower their price is if their submissions dropped off and people said, hey, I'm not paying that. And not okay. enough people are doing that. So I think it's like economics. The laws of sl- supply and demand can get out of kilter for a while, but sooner or later, they come back into equilibrium. And so again, if I'm PSA, I'm laughing all the way to the bank. If people are sending in submissions like they did when it was $10 or $12 a card, they're sending in at, at 40 or 50. In fact, if it's $50, they say, you know what? You send us 100 cards, we'll cut it. To, they're just, it's the gross margin is outrageous. And frankly, Grant, it's probably the reason why PSA sold to Nat Turner at above what the stock was going for. And now it's been recapitalized at 400% even more. And it has to be because it's going to be a highly profitable business. And that means high margins. And that means high grading fees. And if I were them, I'd do it as long as I could. I'd keep the prices up there. All right. Thanks, Jim. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. People could get mad at them. But it's hard to get mad if you're still making money. But it's hard to make money when you're paying fifty dollars to grade a ten dollar card. That if it comes back as a ten, you double your money. But if it comes back as a nine, you can't even get your money back. Correct. That's okay. where we're at now. Yeah, I think that's where it is. Okay, this is a tricky one. You've been part of two awkward transitions, I think. One is when I had a heart attack and sold the company. So there were a couple of things there. So you were there before, during, and after and saw the corporate culture evolve. You also were at Upper Deck before, during, and after Richard, who was a huge figure in the hobby, iconic, really the guy that got Upper Deck going. And so Richard was there, very active, and then he wasn't. And so did the corporate culture change? I know you're high on Jason and deservedly, but in in our corporate culture, I think things changed a little bit and uh, probably some for the better, but what's your take on those transitions with founders of companies either taking a big step back or not being there? Yeah, uh, I think there is a corporate culture change. And I think it was uh, relatively noticeable in both companies, uh, be it Beckett when I was younger in my career and Upper Deck when I was a little older in my career. Yourself and Richard McWilliam, uh, both massively influential hobby figures that are going to have a massively influential impact on their companies. You both built your own companies and built very impactful companies. Richard was unique. There's only one Richard McWilliam. I don't think there'll ever be another one. He had more, I'll give you a Yiddish term, more chutzpah than, than anybody I've seen in a long time. Richard, I don't think ever saw a challenge that he was afraid of tackling or pushing back against. And that made for a very aggressive company that did you know, things that people didn't think could ever be done in this industry in regards to upgrading the expectations of what a trading card looks like or getting decades-long deals with the greatest athletes in the world, like Michael Jordan or a Tiger Woods. Those are the best of the best. And it takes someone like Richard with the highest of aspirations to shoot. So when he passed, it did create a, a different culture change. And we're very fortunate that we have great leadership in place and in the form of the company president, Jason, and also the current owner, Vivian. And those two together, I think, have really created the foundation of the new culture of Upper Deck. And I think Jason has always been very forward thinking. He was really the great push behind EPAC. Back, all the way back to 2015, Jason was pushing for us to get to be able to sell cards 
uh, a pack of cards on, in, on your phone at two in the morning, whenever you wanted to buy cards uh, anywhere in the world. You could be in the armed forces and buy cards in Saudi Arabia if you wanted to. And that was all Jason's thinking. And that was a new direction that uh, came from Jason's leadership to make us a forward thinking. I've always wondered, I think it doesn't need to be better or worse. It's just going to be different. And I'm willing to accept that. I I think Richard posthumously would accept that. I'm glad that his widow has stepped up and that Jason's done such a great job. I got one more for you. What's your take on NFTs like NBA Top Shot and the trading card themed NFTs? And will they still be around in a few years? I think NFTs are going to be around, but I don't know that it's going to be a bubble kind of a thing that because it's so contrived in the sense of the way they've been initially marketed. But to have something on your phone or on your digital device that you can show somebody that's interesting, I think that will always be around. The fact that they might not be six-figure, five-figure, even four-figure type things. But I'm getting a, an NFT from the Mavs the day after the game because I was there. And so they say, thank you for being there. Here's an NFT as a token. It's cheesy. It's, but if it was a moment from the game, of Luca's some exploit that Luca had, whether it was one of one or one of 20,000, I think that'd be interesting. But to think I'm going to sell them. And the other thing that comes up on that, Grant, just to tie this up, is that you also, there's a short list of people that understand that one of the key things that Beckett Publications did was cataloging. It wasn't just the price guides. It was knowing what's out there. And I think that NFTs, could there ever be a catalog? Could there ever be a listing, even if it was virtual? I think for the trading card theme ones, or even on NBA Top Shot, which I don't consider a trading card, it's presented like a cube. Yeah, you can catalog that stuff. If it's Um, licensed. If it's licensed. If it's licensed, yeah. Sure, there's the world of NFTs as it goes into art and all sorts of crazy stuff that you're never going to be able to catalog. And I don't think our little niche of trading card collectors dipping their toe in the water into NFTs is going to burgeon into covering the world of NFT and art. I do think it touches upon a generational gap between someone like my age in my 50s versus someone who thinks something's collectible and valuable in their 20s. Because that touches upon stuff like the metaverse, where people are now buying Prada purses in the metaverse and buying real estate on Rodeo Drive in the metaverse that I may think is completely bonkers. But if you're 20 or 30 and you you think it's amazing, who am I to disrespect the enthusiasm of a new generation saying, I dig it. I think the metaverse is great. I think NFT is great. I don't want physical stuff weighing me down. I want this. So I think there is a future in that sense. It's just interesting because as it relates to our industry of trading cards, which have historically always been physical, it's hard to replace, in my mind, as an older collector, having something in hand, having something where I'm holding it saying, here, I got it. This is my copy. And it's got this little nick on it or flaw that makes it unique to me versus an NFT. So it's an interesting- I'm saying a little bit different than that, because I'm saying that I think already people love showing off their collections through social media, through their digital devices. So your collection can be in your pocket on your phone and you can pull it up and say, hey, here's some cards that I have. If NFTs were like that, that's interesting to me. I just don't see the price point being sustainable at these big prices when it's artificial scarcity because it's a digitally reproducible thing that you're really getting the unlocking rights to it. But So if the prices were a lot lower, you know, then I have no problems with the NFTs. But I think that there was a gold rush there 
And, and a thought that if you get in early, these things are going to go to the moon. Who wouldn't be in favor of something that has very low cost of production, like almost zero, that you can sell these clips? So everybody's going to be in favor of it if you're the leagues or some of these big entities that are doing this. The valuations they got for their companies were outrageous. I think it got overheated. So I guess I'm saying, I think there'll always be NFTs. There'll always be digital collectibles. There'll always be a metaverse participation. I, I just have a hard time thinking the meta version can be worth more than the real estate. <laughs> and what we're seeing as well, I'm seeing where you get the physical asset and you get the matching NFT with it. I think yeah. that's going on as well. I think that's, yeah, uh, I, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. So we'll see. Like you said, with popular culture, we don't vote. You vote with your dollars and we're keeping our dollars in our pockets, but there may be plenty of 20-somethings that say, this is so cool. No one can ever steal it from me. I guess you could lose it if you forgot your password or something. You, you forgot your 256 character password or whatever it is. But you know, I, I'm not against them. I, I guess I don't like it if people pay huge bucks. Or something yeah. like that. That's fair enough. Well, thanks, Grant. The man-